This is Clay from Skilled Gentleman Podcast. You're listening to today's survival show with Bob Main. Hi folks, I'm Bob Maine. Welcome to another episode of today's survival show, helping you do what you can with what you have, wherever you are. This is episode number 271. Happy New Year. It's coming out on January 1st, 2016. I hope that all of you had a good holiday season. I haven't put a show out since before Thanksgiving. Sorry about that. I do have good plans this year to be able to get more shows out more often. But I had a really cool opportunity come my way. Actually, Cal Wilson is an author who has been on this show before. And uh, he's got a book on dirt cheap prepping. He volunteered to do an interview for me. And I really, really like it. So it's called Blackout Wars. And there's going to be a part one and part two. Dr. Peter Pry is who he interviewed. And they talk about things... Uh, like blackout wars and EMPs and so forth. Now, it is actually pretty common sense. It's not tinfoil haddish, which I really like. And one of the things that you have to think about is a person's credibility on this subject. Well, Dr. Peter Pry has real good credibility on this, and I'm going to just you know leave it to him to introduce himself because Cal does ask Dr. Pry to introduce himself and I think you're going to find that he's a pretty credible person on this subject. I am very glad that Cal decided to uh, interview Dr. Pry, so I'm not going to really go on any longer about this. I think you're going to enjoy this. Here you go. Here's part one of Blackout Wars. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Cal Wilson, author of uh, Dirt Cheap Valuable Prepping and The Camouflage Cross. Uh, books, but we're not here to talk about my books today. We're here to talk about this wonderful new educational book called Blackout Wars with Dr. Peter Pry. And Dr. Peter Pry is uh, executive director of the Task Force on National and Homeland Security and director of the U.S. Nuclear Strategy Forum, uh, both congressional advisory boards, and served and he has served on the Congressional EMP Commission the Congressional Strategic Posture Commission, the House Armed Services Committees. He's, he's also worked for the CIA. He's author of three books on EMP, including his latest EMP book, Blackout Wars. Welcome to the show, Dr. Pry. Thank you for coming. Thank you so much for having me. Um, today's survival emphasizes shorter-term, uh, more likely uh, disasters that uh, that we should prepare for. Um, you know, the week without power or the the water going out or something like that. Um, at the other end of the spectrum is is the grid going down. And while it's statistically less likely to happen, you know, the, this week or this month or something, it's something that we should all educate ourselves on. And in some respects, it's it's not that unlikely to have happen. Uh, so that's why I thought it would be such a helpful thing uh, to talk about on, on today's survival. And as I, I should also mention, I'm finishing up a, a fictional book on EMP myself. It'll be out in the spring. But uh, anyway, let me uh, uh, just mention, as far as uh, as EMP goes, 
the fictional EMP books I've read are almost reassuring in the sense that they discuss weapons and missiles that are pretty rare um, in the world. Whereas I think a, a, an EMP blast could be accomplished by a much smaller nuclear weapon and a very much more simple uh, delivery system. And, and Dr. Pry and I talked about that uh, before. Um, so that's what we're going to get into. Um, but as far as the grid goes, there are four ways uh, that I'm, I'm aware of that we that the grid can be attacked. Um, and Dr. Pry, uh, you were talking on another podcast recently about, about cyber, cyber warfare as a way to bring down the grid. Uh, is that something that, that um, is, is very likely or we've seen before? And, and what are the chances that that would cause us problems uh, in the future? Well, first let me address this question of likelihood. Um, as a long-standing person who's worked in intelligence issues, um, we should kind of, I think it would be prudent for people to give up on the notion that especially our intelligence community is very good at, at forecasting likelihood of anything. Um, the day before the towers came down on 9-11, uh, the intelligence community would have dismissed as highly unlikely or impossible that such a thing would have happened. The San Bernardino shootings, the administration was telling us, you know, that uh, ISIS had been defeated and they were on the retreat, and nobody had anticipated that either. Uh, before Pearl Harbor happened, I mean, you can go back and, you, and look at examples endlessly. Uh, you know, the day after an EMP catastrophe happens. Uh, the people in the intelligence community will be backpedaling to make up excuses uh, that they did foresee it. And just as, as you can find people uh, in the intelligence community who will point to a sentence buried in some report somewhere that suggests they, they weren't taken totally by surprise by 9-11. You know? Uh, so I, 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 I think that when we gauge uh, simply because something is a would, be, had, would have catastrophic consequences, the assumption that therefore it's highly unlikely is uh, is not true. It hasn't proved that's not true historically. You know, we're really bad at, at, at predicting the future. Mm-hmm. Like and, even, and statistically, even uh, one of the threats to the grid from Mother Nature, the uh, natural EMP that can be generated from a geomagnetic superstorm like the 1859 Carrington event. You know, NASA estimates that the likelihood of that occurring is about 12% per decade, uh, you know, which virtually guarantees that it's not a low likelihood. That virtually guarantees that within our lifetimes or that of our children, we're going to experience a Carrington-class geomagnetic superstorm. It can't be deterred. It can't be negotiated away. It's a natural catastrophe that will happen inevitably. And, uh, and it will put the whole world at risk, billions of lives at risk, because the EMP um, carrying such an event would bring down electric grids everywhere over the world, collapse the critical infrastructures to support life everywhere, putting billions of lives at risk. But to go back to your original question now that I've made, had my little comment on likelihood um, uh, about uh, cyber, let me start this off by talking about one of the most important messages of my new book, Blackout Wars, uh, 
cyber warfare doctrine or information warfare doctrine of our adversaries. When we assume that uh, that EMP and cyber attack and physical sabotage, uh, non-nuclear EMP, that these are separate ways of attacking the grid. They could be separate ways, but in the military doctrines of our adversaries, and in fact in, in, the, in the cyber, what, how the Chinese and Russians and North Koreans and Iranians define cyber warfare, it's not limited to computer viruses and hacking. That's how we think of it in our military doctrine. It's all about computer viruses and hacking and things that happen inside of cyberspace. Uh, they see it as a hybrid warfare that includes, it may start with computer viruses and hacking, but it includes, escalates to include physical sabotage, non-nuclear EMP weapons, and the ultimate cyber weapon in, in their doctrine is a nuclear EMP attack. That's part of their cyber warfare or information warfare doctrine, and it's right in their open source military writings, the Chinese, the Russians, and the Iranians. And we've seen it practiced that way by the North North Koreans and all of these actors as well. So uh, uh, I, I say that because uh, one of the biggest and most important points I have to make in that book, uh, you know, is that we need to start thinking about threats to the grid and threats to our civilization, really. It's not just the grid. It's all the critical infrastructures that support modern society. In, broad, in these broader terms, uh, it's not going to be cyber or sabotage or non-nuclear EMP or a nuclear EMP attack. That's how we're thinking of it now. And you've got our people who are cyber specialists are talking to the people who are experts on EMP. And neither of them are talking to our special forces who are experts on physical sabotage. The guys who work on radio frequency weapons, they don't talk to anybody, you know, and uh, uh, whereas the bad guys have figured out that you need to combine all of these into a hybrid form of warfare. In fact, they've come up with this new way of warfare that's called a revolution in military affairs in the Russian military doctrine. And they have different names for it. Some people in the U.S. Army War College call it cyber Bennett. You know, uh, uh, Slipchenko uh, in his book, uh, no contact wars calls it, calls it that. No contact wars or total information warfare, uh, which is what it's also called by the Chinese. But it involves a combined arms operation with all of these threats. So we need to be prepared. It's not a Chinese menu where we get to choose. Well, which of these is more likely? And therefore, we're going to put all of our money into protecting against cyber because we think that that's the most likely one. That would be. That's the mistake we're making. That's the mistake we're making. Okay. You know, we need to be prepared to defend against all of these threats, and all of them used in it simultaneously. The uh, the effectiveness of any one of these threats is greatly multiplied because of the dynamic effects uh, of, of of applying all of these uh, all of these attacks in a coordinated way. It's sort of like if you think of the Nazi Blitzkrieg in World War Two, you know. Uh, while the West had not conceived of the Blitzkrieg, except for a handful of far-sighted people like Winston Churchill and, and the people surrounded him, and they were trying to warn about this new way of war that was coming that could that could be the death knell of Western civilization, but they weren't listened to. The people, the uh, the mainstream thinking before World War II happened was they thought of tanks and infantry, and air power. And, uh, and artillery as separate instruments that would be used to 
separately, not in a coordinated way. And this future war will be kind of fought the way World War One was fought. Trench warfare, static warfare, you know, where armor would be kind of used like cavalry to support infantry. And, uh, of course, when that antiquated, obsolete way of strategic thinking encountered this new revolution in military affairs that we now call the Blitzkrieg, the Western democracies were almost destroyed. And I think we face an equivalent threat, an even bigger threat today, something bigger than the, the Blitzkrieg, potentially far more decisive than the German Blitzkrieg was during World War II. The, uh, this new way of warfare that I call blackout war, you know, could could cause the collapse of a civilization, the replacement of one civilization with another in, in the span of a day, in 24 hours. It could all, all be over. Yeah. So it would be, uh, that's a good analogy, that Blitzkrieg uh, had several different uh, aspects to it, whereas a, a grid attack could also have several different aspects to it, not only cyber, but military uh, and EMP. Um, speaking of military, we've, we have already seen examples of what, what I think are dry runs of military attacks on the grid, right? There was that, that attack on the Metcalf substation south of, of San Jose, California, a year and a half ago. Yes, that's right. And uh, uh, John Wellinghoff, who was the chairman of the U.S. Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, the agency responsible for the security of the grid in the federal government, uh, deserves high, much praise because, uh, you know, it's not often that you get a government bureaucrat willing to resign his post to tell the people the truth. The uh, electric power industry, the NERC, had basically covered that up for almost a year. And Wellinghoff broke the story of the fact that the Metcalf attack had happened, that it wasn't the vandalism, which is what the electric power industry was telling everybody. He had brought in the U.S. Navy, the people who trained the U.S. Navy SEALs, and they said, this is how we would have attacked the grid if we were going to do it. You know, it was a, a, a professional operation equivalent to in quality to what the U.S. Navy SEALs would have done. And, and, it, and, it, and it wasn't that the attack was unsuccessful. Uh, it was considered a dry run. You know, in a dry run or a military exercise, your object is not to go to war with the enemy. You know, it, your object is not to actually pull off the maximum damage that you can do. It's to see how much you can go get away with it. It's to go up to the edge, but not go all the way, because you don't want to alarm and warn your adversary about what's coming. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, you know, that was Wellinghoff's interpretation. That was the U.S. Navy SEAL interpretation. I think they were right about that. You know, uh, if you talk to NERC, the electric power industry these days, they give themselves much credit as having defeated this attack. They didn't defeat anything. You know, no, the shooters um, had already left uh, on their that's own. Right. <laughs> we still don't know, you know, who those those shooters were. I like to point out, by the way, that on the very day that 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 attack happened, uh, we were in uh, we were in the midst of one of the worst nuclear crises ever with North Korea, and Kim Jong Un had been making for for, for 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 months, really, ever since February that year, had been making threats to make a nuclear missile strike on the United States. And on the very day that the Metcalf Transformer substation was attacked by guys using AK-47s, the favorite sidearm of terrorists in rogue states like North Korea, the North Koreans orbited a satellite called the KSM-3 on a south polar trajectory, which is at the optimum trajectory and altitude to evade our national missile defenses, which are all located in Alaska and in the north and on the northern California. 
at an Eastern grid at, mm-hmm. uh, at that at that very moment. And all during this thing, there were all kinds of uh, cyber attacks being made, uh, you know, uh, against our critical infrastructures as well. So, uh, you know, uh, North Korea appears to have played the game, practiced mm-hmm. an all-out, you know, total cyber warfare operation involving everything, involving what we regard as cyber, computer viruses and hacking, the physical sabotage, and uh, the nuclear EMP element as well. That was back in 2013, Mm -hmm. just a couple years ago. It was in the aftermath of that attack that I remember coming across a statement by somebody that if nine uh, substations, critical substations in the United States were attacked all at the same time, they could bring down the entire grid. All it would take is nine. That's correct. That was a uh, from a uh, sensitive report from a study done by the U.S. Federal Energy Regulatory Commission that was uh, leaked to the Wall Street Journal, and uh, and it was the assessment of the U.S. Federal Energy Regulatory Commission uh, that, uh, that that out of the two thousand EHV extra high voltage transformers of stations in the United States. Uh, that, if you, that there were nine in particular that were so critical that if you knew which ones to attack, and you just took out those nine, that it would it would it would collapse the whole U.S. electric grid for 18 months, and uh, which is basically enough to destroy us as a society. Because uh, the EMP commissioner, which I served, calculated that if we had a nationwide blackout that lasted 12 months a year, we would probably lose up to or could lose up to 9 of 10, 90% of our population through starvation, disease, and, uh, and societal collapse. Mm-hmm. So, uh, uh, you know, the point being that, you know, theoretically you could take down the grid by cyber all by itself. Theoretically you could take the grid down by physical sabotage all by itself. Theoretically you could use non-nuclear EMP weapons against those nine transformer substations, for example, and take the grid down just with radio frequency weapons. Or... The most effective way of doing it would be a single nuclear weapon doing the nuclear EMP attack over the country. That would guarantee that it would take down. But imagine if you applied all four of these in a way so that the effects would mutually reinforce each other. You know, starting with the cyber, then the physical sabotage, non-nuclear EMP weapons, and then the ultimate, your ace in a hole, the nuclear EMP attack. I mean, it's... um. It's not just a fourfold uh, increase in your confidence that you're going to be able to defeat the adversary. I think it, it, it's, it would be legitimate to apply the Lancaster Square Law um, uh, before World War One. The British, the Admiralty, had a uh, through computer, not computer modeling, but through gaming, through war games, uh, they came up with a calculation that in naval battles. Uh, when one ship was outnumbered, was trying to take on other other ships, um, that the practical effect of of that uh, numerical advantage on the other side was the square of whatever those other ships were. That that's how it worked out in their war games. So, for example, it was well, it was the mathematician a guy named Lancaster, and so it was called Lancaster Square from the from the war games. So, if you had a uh, two ships going against one ship. The odds that the other ship defeated were not two to one, but it was the score of that. It was four to one. So if three ships were going to, the odds were not three to one, but it was nine to one. So 
every incremental additional ship that came in, it greatly escalated the likelihood of the destruction of that of that one ship. And I think the Lancaster's square rule applies here, too, when you're talking about the multiplying effects, the dynamic effects of, of using all these things in coordinated fashion so that it's not like a four-to-one likelihood of, uh, of taking out the grid, but it's more like 16-to-one. Um, right, because and, uh, we're totally unprepared for it. Yes, and all the more so since we're totally unprepared for it, that we don't have the equivalent of artillery on a ship to shoot back at the adversary. Mm-hmm. They're shooting at us, and we're, we're not, we're, we're completely unprepared. Um, one of the, and, it, and it's not surprising because in our strategic culture, the electric grid, the people that run the electric grid, I mean, there's 3,000 private utilities that basically run the electric grid. And, and these are for-profit institutions that are outside the national security culture of our country. It's only recently that we've started to appreciate how vital to our survival the electric grid is. Uh, we have the equivalent of KMR guard, security guards, you know, protecting our electric grid is what it comes down to. Uh, you know, the, these industries, they could do the bare minimum to keep Uncle Sam off their backs. Uh, what they're interested in is making profit, you know. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm not criticizing for them that for that purpose. It's They're, they're, they're not wrong to be wanting to make profits. Uh, you know, that's what they're in the business for. But we as a society have got to make decisions about regulating them, requ- make, imposing requirements so that... Um, you know, so that uh, so that we don't lose ninety percent of our population. You know, because because we had been unaware up until recently that the bad guys are preparing to attack that grid mm-hmm. and have plans to. Uh, uh, they practice it. They write about it, and this is how they plan to come after us. And it makes it just makes so much sense if you think about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, any potential adversary doesn't want to take on the Marines or the U.S. Navy. You know, when you look at how. Adver- other adversaries have done against our military forces. The outcome hasn't been hasn't been hopeful for being able to defeat us that way. This enables you. That's why Sovchenko calls it no contact wars. You know, you're having no contact with the adversary's military forces. You're going around them, in effect, going around their flank and attacking us in our Achilles' heel, which is the electric grid and the civilian crit- critical infrastructures that are indispensable to our military power. 99% of the electricity to our military bases comes from civilian grid. And without that electricity, we cannot project power. We're helpless. Mm-hmm. As, I uh, recall, as I recall reading about the Medcalf incident, uh, there was nothing sep- separating a road nearby from the, me- from the substation but just a chain-link fence. I think that's changed by, by now, but I think a lot of our critical substations in this country are separated. Nothing, There's nothing separating them but uh, a chain-link fence. That's right. There's not even a guard dog in there to defend them. Uh, uh, people driving down the highway see these things off the roads all the time. I mean, when you look out under these uh, high-tension wires, these great big towers that are carrying the, the, uh, the high-tension wires that carry up to 750,000 volts of electricity, they're going to a city, you'll often see the transformers just sitting there. You know, there are these black boxes that are out underneath the towers in the distance. Often, usually there's a, a maintenance road, you can drive right up to them, and they have no more defense than that. A chain link fence, maybe one street of 
dog, the wire around the top, but there's not a guard there or a guard dog. They're not even regularly visited by the sheriff to make sure that they're secure. Mm-hmm. That's right. Uh, you mentioned earlier 9-11. Um, it occurred to me that uh, 9-11 was similar to an earlier plot that was foiled called uh, Bojinka. And, you know, where several airlines uh, were supposed to be uh, hijacked at the same time and crashed into buildings. And I remember after 9-11 how everybody acted so surprised. But if the military, you know, if the powers that be had been paying attention, this is something that they should have they should have foreseen, I, I think. You're right. And the 9-11 Commission report agrees with you. You know, that's why we ended up having the uh, 9-11 Commission Intelligence Reform Act passed after that report was done. And remember, we completely reorganized the intelligence community uh, and put a uh, director of national intelligence in charge. Uh, the reason for that was to uh, was so that they could uh, knock the heads of the intelligence community together to get these people to start talking to each other and cooperating and sharing information so the CIA and the DIA and the NSA wouldn't, wouldn't act like they were competitors all the time and hide their stuff from each other so that they would talk. And... Um, they were also supposed to have started inaugurating, doing things like B-teaming um, and, and, uh, and red-teaming red type analysis so that, so that alternative views would be introduced into our intelligence judgment. There was such a premium prior to 9-11 on speaking with one voice and having a consensus view uh, that it tended to, to push out these exotic possibilities were never heard. Or they never found their way to the, to the to the desks of policymakers anyway. Now, I personally don't think that the intelligence reforms have worked very well. Uh, in fact, I know they haven't. Um, in an America, you know, in a, an intelligence community that you know allows the president of the United States to get away with this myth, uh, well, there's a consensus view that. To take one example, that Iran doesn't have the bomb, right? We're constantly told that by the Obama administration. And to my surprise, an endless disgust. Not even Republicans on the Hill challenged that statement. And yet there have been many people, who, including myself, who've written articles in the press. Uh, the Israelis have written articles, you know, saying, you know, Iran probably actually already has the bomb. Why isn't our intelligence community saying that? You know, there's really substantial evidence to come to the conclusion that Iran probably got the bomb 12 years ago. But that point of view, despite all these intelligence reforms, which were designed to provide for alternative views and the like, you know, just don't, we're, we're doing business as usual the way we used to do it before 9-11. Mm -hmm. You know, where alternative views don't count, they aren't, they don't get any attention, or they're actively discouraged. You know, because uh, that's a politically incorrect view. You know, the administration has put so much capital, political capital, into this Iranian nuclear deal. It's supposed to be the president's legacy. They don't want to hear from analysts who disagree. And say, this, this deal is, is a catastrophe, not just for the reasons that most people criticize it, which is that it isn't even signed by Iran. Uh, you know, it, uh, it's not enforceable. Uh, the Iranians get to inspect themselves. But the biggest criticism of all that, that I haven't heard anybody say on television is there's compelling evidence that Iran already has the bomb. But anyway, well, uh, that's that's another that's a that, that, that's another issue. And, I, uh, 
Yeah, my own my own theory, and, and you're the expert, uh, but my own theory as to why Iran does not acknowledge having the bomb is in case some terrorist group detonates a nuclear bomb somewhere, everybody's going to wonder where they got it, and Iran will still be saying, no, we, we just don't even have one. That's my own theory. Well, that's one. That's a possible explanation. Uh, you know, there could be multiple reasons for, for it. I personally think they're following North Korean model, you know, because we went through this whole thing with North Korea, you know. Uh, uh, when I was working on the House Armed Services Committee staff, it was early in the Clinton administration in 1994, the CIA came out and publicly, Jim Woolsey was the director at the time, you know, and said, Iran, you know, North Korea's got the bomb. They've developed the bomb. And the Clinton administration went to a huge panic, you know, because this did not fit with the narrative that they wanted. You know, the Clinton administration was all for deeply cutting the defense budget, which they did. They wanted to use defense dollars to fuel, to help fuel a big economic boom, you know, and, and, and engage in a lot of domestic spending, uh, government spending. And if they had to go to war with North Korea, that was going to throw all of the administration's plan, all of Bill Clinton's plans, into the garbage can. So for about six months, they went back and forth about, well, what do we do about the North Korean bomb? Do we have to go to war with these guys? And one day, Barry Seymour, who worked on Bill Clinton's National Security Council team, came over to brief me and other members of the House Armed Services Committee with his peace in our time moment and, uh, and said, you know, if, if the State Department has gotten North Korea, we think North Korea will agree to this thing called an agreed framework. It was an executive agreement. It wasn't a treaty. Uh, it was an executive agreement where North Korea would uh, agree to, to give up the bomb and roll their nuclear program back in exchange for economic benefits. We would build them nuclear reactors. We would provide them with food and fuel oil and, and all kinds of other good things. And uh, we ended up delivering the goods uh, but North Korea cheated on the framework, and we knew they were cheating on it. I was on the North Korea advisory group, and we could see, we talked to anybody who would listen, and, and the press that were so in love with Bill Clinton, they, we couldn't get anybody to report on, on what we were trying to tell them about how the, the North Koreans were cheating. What the North Koreans wanted to do is they wanted to perfect their Type Dong 2 ICBM. They had the bomb, but they didn't have the means to deliver it to the United States in 1994. And so they went along with this fiction that they were supposedly cooperating with uh, the Clinton administration and everything was, was copacetic until such time as they got their missile. And now, basically, North Korea was secretly building, building up its nuclear arsenal and building up nuclear missiles so that, well, so that they could achieve what they've achieved today. So that now we face a nuclear missile armed North Korea that can make a, a, a nuclear attack on the United States, including an EMP attack, and we can't do anything about it. You know, you know they uh, they have they're they're basically established. It's irreversible now. You know, we can't go to war to, to undo a nuclear armed North Korea because they could destroy us as a society with a nuclear EMP attack. Mm -hmm. We're spending earlier this year. We we're uh, Admiral Gordney, who's the uh, Chief NORAD, North American Air Space Defense Command, announced that we're spending almost a billion dollars, seven hundred million dollars, to uh, further harden uh, Cheyenne Mountain, the uh, NORAD headquarters, uh, uh, the uh, bunker inside of Cheyenne Mountain, 
you know, against a nuclear EMP attack from North Korea. And that's not a small thing, you know, because defense dollars in this economy and under sequestration are scarce. They're scarce and precious. And they're spending almost a billion of those dollars on, on just to protect NORAD headquarters from a nuclear EMP attack from North Korea. Mm-hmm. And that's what, uh, you know, so I think the, the Iranians have seen how successful the North Koreans were. They've seen that the United States was willing to basically deceive itself in the case of North Korea. And they can get away with the same thing. You know, they're, they're going to build up. At some point, they will have enough weapons and, uh, uh, and, and, and perfect long-range missiles that can reach us. Uh, they can already reach us with satellites, by the way. Uh, uh, of course, it, 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 in addition to this geostrategic kind of calculation, it could be something else where the Iranians are concerned. You know, because they are all about, as you know, they are not a normal nation state in so many ways, and particularly in the fact that they are a theocracy. And, um, the, you know, the Shiite subscribe to this end of times theory, uh, you know, that we are in the end times, and uh, they're looking for their 12th Imam to return. You know, well, I was always they may, told they may not have used the, they may not have used the bomb yet. You and I could be optimists in thinking that oh, it's because of technological, geostrategic considerations. It could be because of because of some obscure religious considerations that the signs and portents that tell tell them when they should attack haven't happened yet. You know, uh, it could be something much scarier than what you and I are talking about. That's holding them back. Well, I've always been told Islam is the religion of peace. Of course. So uh, I guess we can just uh, right, uh, ignore uh, all what I just said, and uh, you know, because it's so politically incorrect. Well, that's that's reassuring. Um, you did tell me there were going to be moments of humor on this uh, show. Yeah, yeah where possible. That's got to be one of the high points. Of the <laughs> Islam is the religion of peace. Yes, indeed. Where Anybody possible. who knows the life of Muhammad would agree. <laughs> yeah. Um, so basically, getting back to the military attacks on the grid and EMP. Uh, so what you're saying, it, is, is I gather, is that we're kind of where we are, where we were September 10th, as far as it attacks on the grid. That uh, we're totally vulnerable and totally unprepared for whether it's military or cyber or EMP attacks on our grid. Yes, that's correct. Okay, um, which brings me to EMP. Um, am, am I correct? Uh, according to my research. There are several thousand nuclear tests that have been conducted by the Soviet Union and the United States since 1945. And so far as I could tell, only you know less than, say, 20 were tests on the upper atmosphere explosions, you know, the type of nuclear detonation that would cause an EMP. So it just occurs to me that we're all pretty ignorant of, of EMP. Maybe, maybe you can explain to the listeners what what we're talking about when I say EMP. Okay, well, when you detonate a nuclear weapon at high altitude, that is an altitude of 30 kilometers, um, the iconic EMP attack involves a, a single nuclear weapon detonated at an altitude of about 300 kilometers over the center of the United States. At altitudes of this, like this, whether it's 30 kilometers or 300 kilometers, what happens is you know, there's no blast on the ground. There's no radioactive fallout that results. There's no thermal effects that you know can, can burn people and that sort of thing. 
uh, on a cloudy day, you might not even see it. At, at those altitudes, you might not even hear the blast. The one thing that happens is you get an electromagnetic pulse, which is it's a super energetic radio wave. It's like a radio wave, and it travels at the speed of light. It will pass harmlessly through your body, but this radio wave has got so much energy in it that it will fry electronics everywhere, uh, you know, in communications, transportation, business and finance, industrial systems, the electric grid. Everything depends directly or indirectly upon electricity these days, electromagnetic and electronic systems, including food and water. And all of that stuff would be fried, and in a moment you would lose basically what makes us a modern civilization capable of sustaining 320 million people in our country. And uh, some uh, have compared it to putting the country into a time machine, sending us all back to the pre-electronic age. But now we have a population that we can't sustain with those primitive pre-electronic technologies. And so people would starve to death in mass, and you would have societal chaos and breakdown. And, and that's what, those are the effects of EMP, and that's what an EMP is. And so, ideally, the, the perfect EMP would be a pretty, uh, right in the middle of the country, and, uh, you know, 50 kilometers up or higher than that. Am I correct? Well, 300 kilometers altitude would put an EMP field over all 48 contiguous United States. It would also reach deep into Canada and, uh, and into Mexico as well at, three, at 300 kilometers. But that's the iconic attack, 300 kilometers over the center of the country, say, where, say, usually Omaha, Nebraska is usually, which is where the streets, where uh, Strategic Command, our nuclear missile command post is located in Omaha. Um, but, the, um, but that's not the only way you can make an attack that would bring our civilization to its knees. You, you know, you could do an attack at a much lower altitudes, 30 kilometers, you wouldn't need a missile to reach an altitude like that. You know, you could use a meteorological balloon or, or, or private jet aircraft that goes on a zoom and get above 30 kilometers. Mm-hmm. And you could use any nuclear weapon. And while the field would, would have a radius of 600 kilometers, which is still a long radius, but that wouldn't cover the whole country, um, it would, it would uh, cover many states, you know, uh, and uh, it would cause it of light it would destroy hundreds of thousands of SCADA systems, those are the supervisory control and data acquisition systems, the little computers that run all the critical infrastructures, the electric grid, water systems, gas systems, they're in all kinds of industrial facilities. Hundreds of thousands of them would be destroyed immediately. You know, you'd lose EHV transformers that are under the print of that pulse, you'd lose switches, all kinds of electronic systems would be destroyed. And, and effects wouldn't be limited to the EMP field. That would put in motion cascading failures throughout the whole grid. Just in the same way that the falling tree branch back in 2003 caused the blackout of the northeastern United States temporarily and put 50 million Americans into the dark. You know, if that could be done with a falling tree branch, imagine what an atomic bomb detonated at 30 kilometers causing an EMP field 600 kilometers in radius, you know, mm-hmm. would do. I mean, it would be a unmitigated and for sure protracted catastrophe that would probably take down the eastern grid for months or years. And that that alone, that much more modest and easy-to-accomplish attack would be the and end of our civilization. 75% of 
iconic attack is not. North Korea has practiced that. I mean, they've got the KSM-3 satellite that passes over us at the optimum altitude and trajectory to do that classic iconic EMP attack. Iran has orbited satellites on that altitude. You could do it by launching a medium-range missile off of a freighter. Um, that has been practiced by both Iran and by uh, North Korea. So uh, there are many ways of doing it. But going back to your original point, because I I think the suggestion you were making is that, well, how can we have confidence in EMP as a threat when there have only been relative to all the kinds of nuclear testing that has been done, there's only been a, a, a relative handful have been done at high altitude. You know, and, to the, and the answer to that question is, uh, you know, you don't need to do a lot of tests, you know, to know that the, these are going to have catastrophic consequences. Um, only two cities have ever been destroyed by atomic weapons, you know, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. You know, we don't have to go and drop atomic bombs on any, or nuclear or hydrogen bombs on any other cities to know for sure, you know, what the yeah. effects are going to be, right? As I understand, uh, no. Hiroshima was not even tested before it was dropped. That was the uranium bomb. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Hiroshima was not even tested. and uh, uh, It's a myth that you have to test a nuclear weapon in order to have high confidence that it will work. The, the North Koreans were building nuclear weapons in 1994. They didn't test till 2006. India and Pakistan both nuclear arsenals, you know, before they actually tested. Pakistan built an arsenal before it actually tested. Most of the time when what nations have tested has been for political reasons. It's not because they need to ensure that the bomb will work technologically. You know, you can test components and have high confidence that it's going to work. Mm-hmm. But the uh, on the EMP, in terms of having high confidence that that will take things out, uh, the one most famous experiment that we had, uh, you know, the uh, Starfish Prime high-altitude nuclear test in 1962, you know, it, it caused all kinds of disruption, knocking out lights and un- underwater communication systems, radio stations in the Hawaiian Islands that were just on the edge of the EMP field. Mm-hmm. And we didn't even know. We didn't even know it was going to generate an EMP. We actually discovered the EMP phenomena when we did that test. We didn't know that the, that Starfish Prime was going to create an EMP. Mm-hmm. Dr. Graham, who had been the, who later was the chairman of the EMP Commission, his first job as a young defense scientist was to join the team of scientists that went to Hawaii to figure out what happened. And that's where we discovered EMP. Now, the Soviets had known about it before we did. Uh, their high-altitude testing had done some similar unexpected damage in Archangel and Murmansk because they're, they have a test island out at Novi Assemblia, and their high-altitude tests up there had, had, had affected Archangel and Mermaids. Then they did a series of tests of about six or seven tests, and uh, when they knew about the phenomena, they used a wide variety of weapons, very low yields, very high yields, varying the altitudes. They wired up uh, over Kazakhstan, and they wired up Kazakhstan with all kinds of sensors. Soviet Union to the Russians today have the best EMP data in the world. But they actually took down the Kazakh grid like six or seven times, rebuilt it, took it out again. You know, doing EMP basically on their own people. You know, uh, and uh, so they had the, have the best information in the world. We don't have anything like the empirical data that the Russians got. 
city street, what would people look out and see if the city was uh, subjected to an EMP attack? Well, uh, it would depend upon the kind of uh, kind of weapon. Uh, if we're talking about, if you want to know the, if the um, one good indicator, I think, for uh, how many cars would stop, would, one thing that would be an obvious thing, so that you would know it wouldn't be a blackout, would be a, a lot of cars would
electricity in the food you're spoiling there too. Mm-hmm. And even if you could preserve it, there's only a 30-day food supply in all those regional food warehouses. Even if it was preserved, even if they managed to get the electricity up and running, you know, for that full 30 days, in 30 days you'd be out of food. Okay, once again, many thanks to Cal Wilson. Check out his books. Also, check out Dr. Peter Pry's books. Use my Amazon store, folks, if you want to support me. And you guys probably know I don't have sponsors on this show. So it is it is supported by generous listeners like you. Check out their books. Go to, go to todayssurvival.com. Click the Amazon store. Go through my link at the Amazon store. Help me earn a little bit. Uh, to help offset my time and the efforts and the expenses in doing this show. I'd appreciate that. You can also support me by joining my Shooters Club that Ben Branham and I put together through my other podcast called the Handgun World Podcast. Excellent videos, uh, 47 videos and 10 audio podcasts exclusively for members of the Shooters Club. And there's a lot of other good benefits coming uh, your way if you're a member. So, again, buy something through my Amazon store. Or sign up for the Shooters Club. Join the forum, uh, today's Survival Show forum. That, of course, is free. And we would love to have you. Just send me an email. Let me know your username, and I'll approve your account as soon as possible. That's one thing you have to do to make sure that you're not a spammer. Hopefully, if you do that, I know that you're a listener. A listener who wants to contribute. So, todayssurvival.com, click the forum button, get signed up, send me an email at bob at todayssurvival.com. I'm going to post a sub-forum for this episode, and you can ask Cal or Dr. Pry questions, and it'll be real easy. You can also call in a voicemail if you want, 210-646-1727, that's 210-646-1727. Again, many thanks to Dr. Peter Pry. And uh, many thanks to Cal Wilson for conducting this interview. Part two will probably be coming up in about 10 to 14 days. So look for that. Check your feeds. Once again, Happy New Year. Hope everybody is prepping and prepping well. Thanks for listening to another episode. I'm Bob Main. It's my goal to help you do what you can with what you have, wherever you are. Catch you next time.